upon bad information. Another is noble, based upon a complete trust in the character of God. And the final one is evil, based upon pragmatism, with no regard for morality whatsoever. The first two decisions are made by David. The third is made by Absalom, his son, on the advice of Ahithophel. David makes, in the first four verses, an understandable but unfortunate decision. Read along with me. It's about this man, Ziba. Now, when David had passed a little beyond the summit, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them were 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, a jug of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why do you have these? And Ziba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride, and the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for whoever is faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is staying in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I prostrate myself. Let me find favor in your sight, O Lord, the king. After David passes over the summit of the Mount of Olives, this man, Ziba, meets him with provisions that are specifically suited for men on the march. To go up and over the Mount of Olives, one needs to be in at least moderately good physical condition. It gets a little steep near the top. It doesn't look that way in photographs, but the closer you get to the top, the steeper it becomes. I had the opportunity to walk up to almost to the summit of the Mount of Olives a few years ago and spend a couple of hours up there in this beautiful spot that I found that had a spectacular view of the city of Jerusalem. And I just sat there and I imagined all the various things that had happened throughout the centuries at different parts of the city. And I had a lot of time to sit there and pray, and it was a wonderful occasion for me. But I must say that by the time I got to that spot and walking up the Mount of Olives, I was pretty winded. Actually, I was extremely winded. So much so that even after I spent a couple of hours there and thought I'd caught my breath, and it was, it was cool and breezy up there, several degrees cooler than it was down in Jerusalem itself, I thought I would walk all the way back to our hotel, which was maybe about three miles down the way. Even though I was walking downhill, I still caught a taxi at the bottom of the Mount of Olives and, had, and took the taxi back to the hotel because I was still rather winded from the trip up. The reason I bring that up is that David and his loyalists had just made a, a fairly taxing journey up the Mount of Olives. Remember, David's probably 60 years old by now, and so are several of the people that are with him. Most, most of his mighty men would have been about the same age. And I'm sure they were in better shape than I was or, or am even at this time. But still in their haste, remember they left on a dime, in their haste to leave and in the stress of all this situation, I'm certain that they were quite fatigued by the time they got to the top and crossed over. And so this man Ziba, with these donkeys and all these provisions, was probably a very welcome sight. David's a little suspicious at first, though. And he asks, why do you have these? Or perhaps even better, why have you brought these? Perhaps even the emphasis on the you. Why have you brought these? 
Ziva doesn't really answer that question. He deflects the question about motivation and explains what the provisions are for. Then in verse 3, David thinks to ask about Mephibosheth. Remember, he's Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. And the answer that he gets, why is it Mephibosheth with you? Remember, Mephibosheth is lame. It would have been tough for him to get there in the first place, but he could have ridden one of these donkeys that was given to the king's household. The answer that he's given is an outright lie, as we will discover in chapter 19 of this very same book. Ziba here is throwing Mephibosheth under the proverbial bus to ingratiate himself to David, presumably thinking that at least at this point, David still has a shot at reclaiming the kingship. Either that or Ziba is just trying to play both ends against the middle. And I wouldn't doubt that because he's not a very good fellow. The lie itself really doesn't make any sense under the circumstances, does it? And I think under other circumstances, under other conditions, I don't think David would have fallen for this lie. In the first place, Mephibosheth was not a strong person, either physically, I would go so far as to probably say intellectually, certainly not politically. He's not politically savvy. What does he think? You've got David leaving and his son Absalom coming and leading a rebellion in. While David leaves, Absalom's coming in. And Mephibosheth, this fellow who has no political might at all is going to take over the kingdom doesn't make any sense but the issue is under other circumstances david might have caught that but he's under a lot of stress right now he's under stress emotionally and physically we've just said he's probably tired as he's climbed up to the mount he's emotionally spent and these are not the ideal circumstances to fight off fraud you watch oftentimes wicked people pray on others who are emotionally spent, who are physically injured or perhaps physically ill, and that's when they try to perpetrate fraud upon them. It happens a lot that people are taken advantage of. For example, if people have just lost a loved one, oh, you've got to really watch out because people will take advantage of you right in that situation. They'll take advantage of the emotional state that you're in. We want to trust people to do the right thing. And the more integrity you personally possess the more you assume other people that deal with you have integrity as well. Not always the case. And so this is an unfortunate decision that David makes. It's understandable why he might make it. He has, in the situation he's in, he can't spot the lie. The point here is that we, we must keep up our intellectual guard against fraud, especially when we find ourselves in the midst of extreme stress. This is the lesson learned from these short four verses. We have to keep our guard up. Not everybody has your best interest in mind. We can spot that whenever, when everything's going well for us. But be careful when it's not. And it got David this time. It's an understandable but unfortunate decision. Then the middle part of this chapter, in verses 5 through 14, this is really the climax of the chapter. This is where David's decision-making process is going to be compared and contrasted to his son Absalom's decision-making process that will come later. Here we see David again at his greatest, but in a much different way. It's the decision that he makes and how he handles the stress that sets David apart here. And so we're going to see a comparison and contrast in verses 5 through 14 with verses 15 through 23. You'll see David handles something magnificently, not the way I would have handled it. 
And I'm, I would propose that in the same situation that David's in, most of us wouldn't have handled it the way David handles it. Well, with that preface, we see that in verses 5 through 14, David is cursed to his face, cursed by a small person. And I'm not talking about small in stature. I'm talking about small in terms of his integrity. He has no nobility whatsoever. He has no honor about him whatsoever. And David is cursed by this person. But David responds to the cursing with calmness, with maturity, and with nobility. As David puts it all in the hands of the Lord, he completely trusts in the character of God. For David, we're going to see that this is not an issue between him and Shimei, the man that's cursing him. For David, it's an issue between him and God. If God is okay with Shimei cursing him, then David's okay. I, I told you, this is tough. But this man's cursing him to his face in a period that is one of the lowest times of David's life emotionally. It's one of the greatest periods of his life spiritually. We've already seen that in our study of Psalm 3. We saw it a little bit last week and even this week too. But this man catches David when he's down. David's weak emotionally here. And the guy just piles on. And we're going to see David respond in a way that's going to shock everybody around him. And I think has shocked people for the last 3,000 years if they, if they have read this passage. His basic attitude is, I don't care what this guy says. I have nothing to do with this fellow. If this fellow is cursing me and God's allowing us, this is between me and God, not between me and him. It takes a very mature person spiritually to do that, especially when David could have done something about it. You know, growing up on the schoolyard, getting in scuffles as young boys will do from time to time, and getting the better end of it sometimes and the worst end of it probably more times, I came to learn something. It's real easy to back off when you know that things are not going to turn out really well for you. But what about when somebody's confronting you, they're cursing at you, they're throwing stuff at you, and you know full well that basically with a snap of your fingers, that whole thing can be cleaned up. We see this in the example of Jesus Christ on the cross, don't we? The same kind of things that, was ha that were happening to Jesus on the cross is what's going to happen to David here. Uh, when Jesus is on the cross, he's got people cussing at him. He's got people reviling him. He's got people, people throwing these phrases at him like, well, if you're really the son of God, then come down off that cross. But the ironic thing is, Jesus was the son of God, and he could have come down off the cross. So for him to refuse to do that takes incredible restraint because he had the power to do it. The same thing here tonight with David and Shimei. There are, there are interesting parallels. Remember we already mentioned one. The Catholic scholar Raymond Brown mentioned that Jesus took the same route on the night of his extreme stress that David takes here a thousand years before. This is a parallel as well. David is not going to respond to this cursing in the same way that Jesus doesn't respond to those who are cursing him when he's on the cross or challenging him or mocking him. He's not going to do it. Because in the same way that Jesus, I'm sorry, that David felt like, if this is happening, this is between me and God at this time. Jesus felt the same way. If this is happening, this is between me and my Father. You've got nothing to do with it anymore. Those religious leaders that were mocking him, this wasn't between Jesus and them. If it was, he could have had the thought, and they would have been exterminated, completely puffed, a pile of ashes. But that wasn't his mission. That wasn't what the Father wanted from him. And in the same way, we're going to see in these verses, that's not what the Father wants from David. He doesn't exercise the power that he could have exercised. That's what I mean by it's real easy to walk away from a fight if you're fixing to get whooped. 
It's noble, though, to walk away from a fight that you know you can win because you know there's a higher law at work. When King David came to Baharim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, and he came out cursing continually as he came. Notice the first two people in these decisions. The first one is from the house of Benjamin, the house of Saul. The second one is also from the house of Saul. They were both from the house of Saul, but their approaches could not have been more different. Ziba comes out with this flattering. Shimei comes out with cursing. Not only that, but verse 6 lets us know that he also throws stones at David. But that David was protected on both sides by his men. If we were to put this into modern imagery, we would see David going along in the middle and all the secret service around him. So if the stones aren't hitting David, and people are surrounding him fairly closely, and this man Shimei is, is a pretty good rock chucker, who are the stones hitting? The, the man. That's right. And I think that's one of the reasons why Abishai is going to speak up. They're not hitting David, but they're hitting the men. David is called by this man, Shimei, a man of bloodshed, which probably refers, if you think back earlier in our study, to the death of Abner. But that charge rings pretty hollow coming from someone that's from the house of Saul. Because Saul was a man of bloodshed also. They had their own share of atrocities in the house of Saul. For example, putting the Gibeonites to death. That's going to come up again, too, in this narrative in chapter 21. I want you to read David's reaction with me in verses 9 through 12. This is what makes this chapter so incredible. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Abishai is Joab's brother. He is a mighty warrior. Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. Maybe a bit of an overreaction, but I understand it under the circumstances. This guy, Shimei, is kicking his king while the king is down. And Abishai has every ability in the world to go take care of it right now. All David needs to do is just give the word, David. Give the word, my king, and I'll take care of this, and this guy won't bother you or us anymore. But the king said, what have I to do with you, O sons of Zerari? Zerari was his sister. If he curses, and the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? In other words, if he's cursing me, and the Lord has sent him to curse me, who am I to say, who are you to curse me? That's what I said a minute ago. This is not between David and Shimei. David figures this is between him and the Lord, so that's what he's got to figure out. Did the Lord send him to curse me? Then David said to Abishai and all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjaminite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. At least that's what David thinks in his mind right now. The Lord has allowed it to happen. So David's not going to fight it. And then the key verse of the chapter, I think, perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. This guy's cursing me, but he can't do anything to me unless the Lord gives his go-ahead so his words mean nothing. Now, sometimes people say all kind of bad stuff about you, and you have to defend yourself. There may be legal issues involved. There, there may be issues of reputation where you, a particular circumstance requires you to defend yourself. But you know, there's other times when people may say vicious things about you, viciously malign you, impugn your character, 
And the best thing to do is just turn around and walk away. Don't empower them by arguing with them. Don't lift them from where they are up to your level. And don't descend down to their level. Just let it go. That's what David is saying here. At this point, David really doesn't know if this is part of his discipline from God. But if it is, so be it. That's a mature attitude. That's a noble attitude. I have a good friend that from time to time in the position that he's in in life will receive criticism, either written or verbal or through the media and different, various different things. And I remember him telling me about one particularly vicious letter that he, he had received. And my friend wrote him back a one-sentence letter. I love it. He just said, Dear sir, you may be right. Signed, my friend's name. And that was the end of the conversation. What, what can you answer to that? And that's what David's doing here, really. He's writing back to Shimei saying, hey, you may be right. Yeah, I am a man of bloodshed. Everybody here knows that. Why don't you tell them something they don't know? So this is David at his greatest. When all this is over, Later on, after David wins the battle, Shimei comes back, and he's completely repentant. And David lets him live, even though at the same time his men want to kill him again or do something to him, because look at what he did. This is the dog that came and cursed you before. David appears to forgive him. But it's interesting, if you've read ahead, you know, even into 1 Kings, when David's on his deathbed, and he's giving instructions to his son Solomon, this is almost like one of the Godfather novels. He says, don't let the sun go down on this guy's great head. So David orders his death on David's deathbed. I find that interesting. I'm still in the process of working that out in my mind, but what it seems to me is David can handle it. But he knew his son wouldn't be able to. His son was going to be in a much weaker position, and this guy was going to continue to be an enemy. He's already shown it. So that's something we'll talk about later on when we get to that in the air. But for right now, David looks the other way. This is not between he and I. This is between myself and the Lord. And what he's saying doesn't matter. So in verse 13, so David and his men went on the way and Shimei went along the hillside parallel with him. And as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary and refreshed. He refreshed himself there. This means on the other side of the Mount of Olives. Then in verses 15 through 19, the scene leaves the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, and comes back into Jerusalem. You remember in verse 37 of chapter 15, so Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. They come in at the same time. Well, this is where the scene shifts back to Jerusalem. Hushai's deception begins. But in verses 15 through 19, we see Absalom questioning Hushai as to why Hushai's there in the first place. Then Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, entered Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. Now it came about when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! This is not all that different from what Ziba did to David in the previous chapter. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Absalom knows that Hushai and David are tight. He has to wonder why he's here with me. He's suspicious. Then Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord, this people, and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be. 
and with him I will remain. And besides, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son as I have served in your father's presence? So I will be in your presence. This is the deception that we, about which we spoke last time, and we'll bring it up again next time when it goes even further. I do not believe that Hushai has done the wrong thing here. I believe he's deceiving him for a, a higher purpose. It's the greater good that has to be chosen, and I think that's what Hushai is doing. But then in verse 20, then Absalom said to Ahithophel, so he accepts Hushai, give your advice. What shall we do? It's almost like they've convened this war council. Now everybody's there. Hushai's there, and Ahithophel's there, perhaps some other advisors too. Absalom has come in. He's victorious. He's probably thinking a lot of himself right about now. Everybody's pouring a lot of praise on him. So they sit down and say, well, what should we do? Ahithophel, what is your counsel? Remember, Ahithophel adds wisdom to Absalom's immaturity. From a human perspective, David knows that this is big trouble, Ahithophel coming and being on the side of Absalom. So Absalom asked for his advice. In verse 21, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will also be strengthened. What Ahithophel is essentially telling Absalom is, I want you to do something that's going to make your father so mad that everybody here will see that this relationship can never be repaired. Now, you see why Ahithophel might suggest that Absalom do something that's so bad, and Ahithophel is not a moral man, but that Ahithophel would counsel Absalom to do something so bad that everybody in Jerusalem sees that there's this permanent split between David and Absalom. We well, see, if Absalom's going to lead a, re a rebellion against his father, the people are going to have to make a choice as to whose side they're on. If the people think that there may be some reconciliation between David and his son Absalom, they're going to want to sit on the sidelines for a while. Have you ever been in a position where either a member of your family or a real close friend comes to you and says, hey, listen, things are not working out real well between my wife and myself? And you say, oh, really? And you sit down and you talk about it. What's the dumbest thing you can possibly do at that moment? Exactly. And you say something like, you know what, I never have liked her. <laughs> never have liked her at all. In fact, I, I didn't want to go on that vacation that we were talking about going on together. She's rude. She's abrupt. I never liked that woman. I wish you never would have married. And then what inevitably happens? He gets it off his chest. He goes home. They make up. You lost a friend. <laughs> because now he knows how you feel about his wife. So what, what Ahithophel is trying to do with Absalom, he wants everybody to know that there's no way there's a reconciliation taking place here so that the people can take sides. And presumably, if everybody is still in Jerusalem, they're going to take Absalom's side and not David's because all the loyalists have left. He's just trying to take any indecision out of the people's mind. Now, what does he do? What does he recommend that is going to be so odious, that's going to make his dad so mad that there can never be a reconciliation. It's got to be pretty bad, right? Well, remember, David left ten concubines in the palace to take care of the palace, presumably thinking that no one with even a slight modicum of morality is going to do anything to those concubines. Nobody would do that, especially Absalom. My, my own son, Ahithophel, says, no, I want you to go have relations with those concubines. 
and not just have relations with them. I want you to do it in broad daylight so that everybody sees it, so that your dad would never be able to forgive you for this. And Absalom, like the fool he is, does it. In verse 22, so they pitched the tent for Absalom on the roof. Now, remember, this is a terraced area. So whatever happens on the roof can be seen by a lot of people. And Absalom went in to his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now, that's a bit of hyperbole because we know some of Israel is with David. But what that means is everybody either saw it or everybody heard about it. Did you hear what Absalom just did? This is reminiscent of some of the things that we read in history about Nero. Nero, you wonder why I say that Nero was one of the worst human beings that ever lived? Nero forced the Roman Senate to watch as he consummated a marriage to his male partner. That's why they hated him. This is as odious as that was. He's having relations with his father's concubine in front of everybody. Now, this, from a strictly pragmatic point of view, with no morality involved, is actually good advice. From, from just a strictly a pragmatic point of view, with no morality. But there is no morality here at all. It's pure evil. What Ahithophel is wanting Absalom to do is so evil. Yes, David's going to get mad. You know David. Of course he's going to be angry with this. So while it was pragmatic advice, it's evil, evil advice. Do you see the comparison and contrast? Too? We saw a comparison with David and Jesus a little while ago that was a positive comparison. But now we end this chapter with a negative comparison between David and his nobility and Absalom and his abject evil. David and his nobility said, this is between me and the Lord. This isn't between Shimei and myself. This is between me and the Lord. If the Lord allowed Shimei to curse me, I'm not going to stop it. Absalom, on the other hand, is as evil as he can be here. This is a low-life human being. Then in verse 25, we have a summary statement that's going to prepare us for what's to come in the next chapter. We've already seen that David is pretty upset when he finds out that Ahithophel is among the conspirators. Remember that from our previous study. Well, this verse is a summary statement about the advice of Ahithophel. And the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel regarded by both David and Absalom. That's not saying that his advice was godly. I want you to watch very closely. It's as they, people regarded it as if God was speaking. In other words, it's almost infallible. By the way, I read recently that if the Pope was married, he would know that he wasn't infallible. But that's just that's kind of a that's kind of an aside. But I know it's a challenge on Wednesday night. I should do that on Sunday morning when everybody is stressed. But you got it, didn't you? In the next chapter, we're going to see. Ahithophel's advice not taken. Had Absalom taken the next advice, which was purely military advice, had the counsel of Ahithophel not been frustrated by the counsel of Hushai, the archite, from strictly a human perspective, David probably wouldn't have made it. But Ahithophel's advice is not going to be followed. Ahithophel's advice was wise in a pragmatic way, but it was evil in every way. What a contrast between David's response to Shimei and Absalom's response to Ahithophel's counsel. Chapter 16 of 2 Samuel revolves around three decisions. One is an unfortunate decision 
it's understandable, but it's unfortunate that it was based upon bad information. David didn't know that Ziba, the servant of Saul, was lying to him. And later on, he's going to undo some of the things that he did in this chapter when he gets good information. And we learn from that that when we're under periods of stress, we need to be very careful about people defrauding us. Evil people go at you at your weakest moment. The second decision was a noble decision that was based upon a complete trust in the character of God. If this is what God wants, then that's okay with me. And we all have to come to a point in our Christian lives where we're okay with that. It may not be the decision we would have chosen for ourselves, but we know that God is good and he loves us. And he's also omnipotent. He has the power to carry out his will. And if God says this is the circumstance that he wants me to go through right now, then I'm okay with it. And the final decision that we see in this chapter is an evil one that is based upon pragmatic advice that has no regard to